at Red Light On. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and there's a change in the music this week because I'm delighted that Nate Schweber is here sitting across from me. He's a musician, you know that, but he's also a journalist, my good friend, and the author of the forthcoming book, This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis Devoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. We're already into the cocktails, so stick around. But first, All About Beer is back online and producing original content for beer enthusiasts and professionals. Visit allaboutbeer.com to see the latest. And if you want to support us in this endeavor, we set up a Patreon for both readers and professional companies in the beer space. Check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to learn more. And we're able to bring you this show each week, thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. You can learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates by emailing sponsor at beeredge.com. Cigar City is a sponsor of this episode, and we're grateful for that. When Wombles is here, he's Cigar City's brewmaster, and we're talking about High Low, the session IPA. Wayne, welcome back. And you've called this one of your favorite beers. Why? Definitely. Um, it's one of my favorite beers in our core brand portfolio. And so balance and body are a big uh, thing with this style as far as, as nailing it. But when I'm drinking one of these beers, I want to be deceived. I want to be in a position to where I can't tell that it's a 4% beer that I'm drinking and it drinks like a 55 to 6% beer. So a well-made beer in this style would be it would be hard to discern that it was a lower alcohol beer. I think that the um, the challenge with session beers is making one that ha- <clears throat> that has um, uh, a fuller mouthfeel. Uh, I think mouthfeel is one of the most challenging things with making beers that are in this style. Uh, you know, also creating that balance between uh, you know hop bitterness and and balancing malt sweetness. Well, thanks, Wayne. And we're going to have more with you at the bottom of the show. But for now, I'm going to encourage everyone to visit CigarCityBrewing.com to learn more about High Low and all of the brewery's other beers. Thanks, John. And today's episode is also sponsored by Stomp Stickers. Stomp is a proud member of the Brewers Association that produces a wide variety of printed brewery products, such as beer labels, keg collars, coasters, beer boxes, and much more. Stomp's website features an easy-to-use design tool, low-quantity orders, fast turnaround times, and free domestic shipping. Visit stompstickers.com and use code BEEREDGE15 for 15% off of your first order. I've known Nate Schweber going on about 20 years now. We've been colleagues, friends, and even co-authors. And I can say without a doubt that he is one of the hardest working reporters that I've ever met. He has a keen eye for detail, enjoys a good drink, and knows how to rock with the best of them. He's a raconteur with endless curiosity and compassion and great passion. My life is better because I know him. His chords are familiar to listeners of the show as it's opened up every episode since we started. And it was even a part of the old After Two Beer show I did for All About Beer. We've been to breweries and crime scenes together. We've had adventures and even wrote a book together. Maybe you've heard of it, Indiana Breweries. It was released in 2011 and has since gone on to sell tens of copies. He lives in Brooklyn these days, but he grew up in Missoula, Montana, and has always had a passion for outdoor reporting. A previous book, Fly Fishing Yellowstone, is a must for any angler looking for the story of trout in the historic park. 
and not just about the fish, but also tales of the streams and its history. His latest book tells a remarkable story about conservation, activism, and journalism, with belts of solid drinking thrown in here and there. It's called This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis DeBoto, and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. It'll be published on July 5th, 2022, and I cannot say this enough, pre-order a copy now. It tells the story of a husband and wife team that took on special interests and politicians like Joe McCarthy and worked to protect land that should have been protected. And along the way, they strike up a friendship with a woman who would alter the course of cooking in America and even around the world. It's suspenseful, meticulously researched, frightening with bits of levity, and historically important with mirrors to today. It's one of the most engaging books I've read in a long time. And I'm not just saying that because he showed up at my house with a bottle of gin. But of course, that's where we start. Here's our conversation. This is delicious. <laughs> right, tell me what this is about. Oh boy, I'm, I'm glad you like it. We are drinking a Devoto Dry Martini. Which is comprised of what? Comprised of, and this is a recipe from Bernard Devoto. Uh, who, along with his wife, Avis, I wrote a book about. Uh, he was very, um, very strict about his uh, philosophies in alcohol. And he said that there were three things that America gave the world that were better than anything else. Rye and bourbon and the Devoto Dry Martini, which is 3.7 parts gin <laughs> per one part dry vermouth with a twist of lemon only. And that is what we are currently yeah. drinking. Those are the only three things. Only three things. You know, over you, you have to ice it. It has to be okay. You have to you have to shake it or stir it with with ice. No, but, but the it. things that he was proud of with America. Well, those, yeah, <laughs> he was he was being grandiose. There was certainly far more that he was proud of about America. Um, but uh, when he wanted to uh, when he wanted to emphasize a point, he would speak hyperbolically. As I was reading this America of ours, and there's a lot that I want to touch on with you this afternoon, um, but especially in the earlier part of the book, mm. when you were talking about them uh, uh, and the parties that they would throw and the, and the company that they would hang out in, yeah. and I'm thinking of writers that I know and when writers hang out, and there's a certain level of drinking that exists, and you and I have done this, <laughs> done this before. But when you look at it through historical context sometimes, yes. you got to wonder how they functioned sure. with what they were saying. Because 3.7 per, like, yeah. parts gin, yeah. um, two of these oh, man. is going to... And, oh. and it seems like in the book, like <laughs> the research that you found, they were, they were doing it up and quite often. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it was a daily ritual. Every day at 6 PM was the Devoto dry martini hour. And then there was wine with dinner and there was whiskey after that, but you threw it all, you know, this guy was, you know, he, <laughs> he would drink into the night whiskey, but he would be writing the whole time. Um, was it the Hemingway right drunk edit sober? Did Hemingway? Maybe he did. I, I don't know if it was Hemingway who said it. Somebody said that. <laughs> I, I I don't. 
That's one of those misattributed quotes somewhere. Sure, like, sure. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, among the things that are uh, respectable and ad- uh, admirable about these writers is how they were able to function and be so productive while also consuming so much alcohol. Yeah, because we're not talking about them in like their their twenties or thirties. Yeah, correct. That's that's the thing. Like now that I'm in my forties, it's like good luck. We're we're drinking these at literally coming up on three o'clock in the afternoon Ooh, and i already have any beers lined up after this because i need to be functional um, tomorrow yeah mm-hmm. yeah no it um i drank some gatorade on the way down <laughs> we're, so <No>. old. <laughs> we're so old um he was prolific though bernard devoto mm-hmm. was a prolific writer and Very. what i was struck about reading this book and You've been talking about this book to me for 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 a couple of years so now. Long. But what what I was struck about was how little I knew about him going into hmm. it, hmm. and and the company that he kept, huh. or the people that he went up against, are still names that are known. And I'm thinking of like Ansel Adams is yeah. is, yeah. is featured in the friend book, of him, or mm-hmm. um, you know going up against Joe McCarthy yeah. or you know Senator McCarran, yeah. um, you know names that are still that that sort of resonate. Yeah. And even obviously Julia Child yeah. uh, in, in the book. <laughs> but Bernard DeVoto, and maybe this is just my ignorance, I, I I don't think he was as well known as some of the company that he kept. But the work that he did reverberates to this day, and somewhere along the line, it seems like his name yeah. dropped off. It did. It's it's a really it's a curious thing, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm not proud to say it, but I, I grew up in Missoula, Montana, and uh, close by is a, a, a grove, a memorial grove of cedar trees in a national forest dedicated to him. I must have passed by it dozens of times growing up in Montana. I never knew who Bernard DeVoto was until I found one of his books at the Strand Bookstore in New York City. Um, And, you know, in the mid-50s, you know, he was... A lot of uh, literary critics presumed he was going to be as well-remembered as Hemingway and as Faulkner and as Rachel Carlson and Carl Sandburg, um, Robert Frost, but he did drop away. And I think... I think reasons for that include that he wrote about the West, which um, a lot of the literary world was concentrated in the East, especially the Northeast, and, and he was sort of seen as a, a literary or a, a regional writer only. Um, he evolved over time. He was also a very controversial writer, so he's he, you know he had such strong opinions like about you know the best things that America gave the world being bourbon and rye and the Devoto dry martini. He, he could be so opinionated so forcefully that um, anybody that doesn't want to be offended by something ought not read Bernard Devoto because he's whatever, whatever cows you hold sacred, he will prod those, those sacred cows. So, um, so I think all that combined, you know, made him kind of fade away. But it's interesting because reading through the book, I didn't get that impression, you mm. know, because he didn't seem controversial. He seemed like a proper journalist who was writing about things that Americans should care about. He very much was, you know, but in the times, you know, in the 1930s, um, the nation swung very far to the left. Uh, it was the Great Depression. People were uh, questioning whether capitalism was viable. Communist and socialist candidates for office got millions of votes across America. And there was yeah. Bernard DeVoto writing that Marxism was a, quote, imbecile delusion. 
and that anybody that uh, believed in communism or socialism was guilty of, quote, monumental credulity. So he was very much out of step with the politics of the 1930s. And then the nation swung very far to the right in the McCarthy era, and he was criticizing McCarthy from the jump. Uh, You know, Edward R. Murrow, the broadcast journalist, gets credit for criticizing McCarthy on national TV in 1954. Bernard was criticizing McCarthy as far back as 1949. But again, that put him sort of out of step with the the way the politics of the country were swinging. He stayed very, he stayed, you know, he stayed in his lane. He was very, he didn't change, but the country swung back and forth. There's a number of fights that you document in the book of what he was passionate about. Um, And a lot of them are environmental issues that I think have still a standing in today's world. Massively, yeah. Um, Obviously, I'm encouraging everybody to go out and and, and buy the book and and, and read the book, but can can you sort of sum up as best you can um, what the focus of his work entailed he was the environmental yeah stuff. yeah he uh, was a passionate defender of America's public lands uh, some of the best-known public lands in America are the national parks um, but there are also the national forests and there's also uh, land under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Land Management it's uh, it belongs to all Americans it's a birthright of all Americans and it's uh, there's hundreds of millions of acres of it mostly in the West And Bernard grew up in the West. He grew up in Ogden, Utah, and he saw uh, from his grandparents being farmers how these public lands and the protection of them was critical for protecting water in the West. So he knew that life in the Western United States, which is a dry climate, depended on the protection of its water, which meant the protection of its public lands. And so all his life he was, uh, but especially the last 10 years of his life, he was a a passionate defender of public lands. And there were several movements to either sell off those public lands or uh, to have the resources on those public lands be uh, funneled by powerful politicians like uh, Pat McCarran, who was aided by Joe McCarthy, funnel those resources to a, a politically connected few. So that's what that's what Bernard DeVoto spent, especially the last part of his life, fighting against selling off public lands and giving away the resources. I mean, it, what was so interesting is growing up, you know, in 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 my era, and knowing about the national parks and knowing yeah. about you know the importance of it, and knowing that. These were established not long before he started writing about them. But True. It, it, it almost strikes me that the fight over this land mm. of public versus private versus, you know, uh, enjoying versus profiteering yeah. almost started at the jump. It did. Yeah, it did. And that was part of the reason that, there, that public lands were created, that, you know, both Presidents Roosevelt uh, really... Um, expanded the 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 uh, the, the shared uh, <laughs> the Commonwealth of the United States you know they protected these public lands uh, because there was so much monopolization of land going on and that was particularly uh, a crisis situation in the West because if land got overgrazed if it got clear-cut that would damage the water supplies out west and there just isn't as much water in the West as there is in the east which was what you know made those lands so valuable. Are there, was he successful in his time? 
uh, as a, I mean, as a conservationist, I think he was incredibly successful. Again, you know, there were these plots to get rid of public lands, to exploit them, uh, that would have gone through if he wasn't there paying attention. You know, he really was one of the only people in America with a national media platform who knew about the history of public lands, who knew how important they were, but also knew how to communicate about them uh, extremely effectively. So uh, as a conservationist, he was extremely successful. He was also incredibly successful in his day as a writer, as a, as a historian. He won a Pulitzer Prize. He won a National Book Award. And that's, and that's one of the things that, again, sort of strikes me as more people should have known about him. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's, it sounds like the work that he did should be in history classes. And maybe, maybe they are, um, you know, just not at my high school I, I you know <laughs> but clearly yours as well, well where or, yeah, growing I, up in the I, west I, where yeah, I should you know again I should have known about the guy I grew up in Missoula Montana we I learned about Lewis and Clark ever since I you yeah. know first started going to school and and Bernard DeVoto wrote one of the really definitive books about Lewis and Clark and again I you know I'm not proud of it I just I I, I hadn't I hadn't picked up on him until just uh, you know five six seven years ago what was it about the book at the Strand hmm. That caught your attention. Well, John, you know, I owe my career to you, Stop. man. Stop. I really do. Listeners I've re- out I've, there. I've read the acknowledgement, oh and, it, yeah, and it made me, it made me cheer true. up. And you're but, very, very oh sweet, but, but it's, it's not. absolutely true. But here, my ego is big enough uh, already on this show. So thanks, to listeners Paul. out there, John... Uh, you know, John was at the New York Times back in 2005. He'd been doing it for several years, and he was telling his bosses, you need to get somebody else. And that somebody else that they got, God bless him, was me. And I started pitching story ideas to that, you know, the Times and other publications. And, you know, being a freelance journalist, I would get rejected. So I thought I might do better at getting story pitches accepted, especially about the West, if I simply knew more about the West, if I knew more history about the West. And so I started reading Western history, and that's what brought me to a Bernard DeVoto book in The Strand. It, see, that it's fascinating to me, right, because growing up in Montana, mm. which I did not, but you did. <laughs> I, I, I phrased that the wrong way. But even growing up in New Jersey... Yes. We know that this was Indian land. Yeah. You know, the, the, the name of the town that I live in is named after a Native American sure. chief. Yeah. You know, and there's all you know, the rivers and the towns and, the, you know, the, the, the areas of the state. But it's not taught. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that are very, very quickly forgotten. And, I mean, we're talking, we're removed by 50 years maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not long. Has the book taught you anything mm. on the importance of history, even if it was journalism of the moment, which which a lot of his work very much was? Yeah. Um, it. I mean, it taught me a, a tremendous amount. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me um, or occurred to me when I was working on the book was, uh, you know, that these... The, the history of the West can really be understood in a series of resource raids, you know. Okay. Um, it's sort of it's sort of vaguely understood as just, you know, people just went West. Well, it, it wasn't just, you know, um, people of European origin going West. It was waves of people. There were, you know, fur trappers that went first, and then there were loggers, and then there were grazers, and then there were uh, irrigation farmers. Each of these were grabbing resources of the West. Each happened in successive decades. 
And the dispossession of native people went right along with that. So they were, uh, their lands were dispossessed as the resources on them were plundered. And that same uh, model was happening with public lands. So national forest lands, Bureau of Land Management lands, national park lands even, these were coveted by people that wanted to raid the, national, uh, the natural resources on them. So, you know, one of the things that occurred to me was just a, uh, that there was a lot of similarity between the way Native Americans were dispossessed of their lands and these attempts to dispossess public lands, National Forest Service lands, uh, National Park lands, Bureau of Land Management lands. And the other thing was that, you know, especially with these people that led these attempts to liquidate public lands and to uh, to grab the resources on them for their cronies, Pat McCarran and Joe McCarthy, the techniques that they used. They were demagogues. They started by dismissing the people that uh, opposed them, and they elevated to demonizing the people that opposed them, and that was obviously very resonant in this in our time right now. And they are two of the the main villains, if, if that's a word that I can use in in, in this story. I don't know if that's I mean, fair yeah, or not. That, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, they're definitely the antagonists yes. against the protagonists of the story. Definitely, um, but McCarthy, McCarthy obviously um, comes to mind, but Pat McCarran was not super familiar mm-hmm. to me, mostly because, as, as you point out in the book, like McCarthy eclipsed him. Yeah, as, very much. But his name still survives today anytime somebody lands at the Vegas airport. Yeah. Well, actually, they did just change recently. Uh, like oh, in the last they? year, they have, they've changed the, na- the name of the Vegas airport. It was, the, it was oh. McCarran International Airport. I think it's Harry Reid International Airport. Now, Harry Reid actually eventually won the Senate seat that Pat McCarran used to have. But, you know, Pat McCarran is is largely forgotten, actually, for a lot of the same reasons that Bernard DeVoto is largely forgotten. You know, he was, at the time that he was in office, uh, Nevada had the lowest population of any state. So he was, again, sort of seen as this regional figure, you know, a guy from the West who just dealt with Western things. And he very much used that obscurity to his advantage to do some just incredibly, um, pass some incredibly repressive and oppressive legislation. What's a good example of that? Well, the the paramount example of that is this bill called the McCarran Act. It was the Internal Security Act of 1950, uh, but it's popularly known as the McCarran Act because he was the, the, the guy behind it. And one of the provisions in it was the legalization of peacetime concentration camps in America. And this was not like, uh, you know, the shameful internment of uh, people of Japanese heritage during World War II. Um, This, the McCarran Act, made it so that anybody who might be suspected of being a communist could be rounded up and put in a concentration camp with no due process. That was on, that was on the books. It's not, well, you know, what it would take was a presidential declaration of an emergency. That's what would trigger it, which everybody at the time thought was very far-fetched. Again, (laughs) speaking in 2022, one one is thankful that that uh, was repealed in the 1970s. But yeah, that was the apex of, of, of what McCarran could do and what Joe McCarthy, by creating this political and cultural atmosphere of fear, um, facilitated was this bill that ultimately, you know, made concentration camps legal in America. Are there... (laughs) Isn't this a fun conversation? (laughs) Everybody take a drink. 
Um, I I will say, uh, as this gin quickly mm. empties from my glass, this is delightful. Oh, I'm for, so happy you hear it for mid June ah. and. Yeah, it's it's a good one. I think I think we're 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 honoring the Devotos because today is a holiday. It's Juneteenth, and right. they would on Sundays, especially in the summertime, in the afternoons, they would sip martinis with their best friends, their best literary friends, in their backyard and talk. So this is I feel like this is spiritually uh, harmonious with the with what the Devotos did. Are there? Obviously, things have changed, and people have tried to create new land grabs, have tried to repeal lands, have tried to um, skirt regulations. Are there things that still exist to this day that Bernard DeVoto helped stay alive? Well, you know, the fact that we still have... Uh, the Bureau of Land Management is a testament to Bernard DeVoto coming its, to its defense right after it was created in the 1940s. The fact yeah. that we still have so many acres of the national forest, uh, they're, you know, part of this land grab plan that he exposed and thwarted in the 1940s was to sell off as many as 75% of the acres that are under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Forest Service. So the fact that we still have those places and, and national parks and national monuments, that is a great uh, you know that's one of his legacies, and you know he his his philosophy about public lands was you know kind of like James Madison's philosophy about freedom that the broader the base of people that are invested in it, um, the the broader the base of people that know about it, the more secure that freedom is going to be. So the fact that he brought awareness of public lands to so many people that were not aware of it, uh, especially at a time that. You know, who knew about the Bureau of Land Management in 1946? It was brand new. Bernard DeVoto came to its defense and told millions of Americans about it. And he broadened the base of people who knew about it and who understood their stake in uh, in, in, in protecting those lands. Uh, for a lot of the work that he did, he would communicate directly to people um, through magazines. Uh, through weekly magazines, yeah. back when weekly magazines yeah. were actually still sure. a thing, yeah. um, and his Easy Chair column, yeah, in Harper's um, Magazine, yeah. yeah, was. I I I don't remember from the book. Do you remember what the circulation was? Harper's Magazine didn't have an enormous circulation, but Harper's, but it had influence very much. Yeah, you know, like you know, for example, uh, you know, uh, Adley Stevenson was an avid reader of Harper's. So was John F. Kennedy. So, you know, Bernard knew that he wasn't going to reach an enormous audience, but he was going to reach an influential audience with Harper's. And he also, when you know, with in other times, you know, he he was a freelance journalist, and he would strategically put articles in other magazines. For example, he wrote a story about uh, headlined "Shall We Let Them Ruin." in our national parks and he put that in the Saturday Evening Post which was the biggest circulation magazine of its era yeah the I'm just trying to draw for 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 the non news nerds that are <laughs> listening though is there something comparable these days mm. that he would have you know, that you could compare that column in Harper's to that's a great question because you know one of the stories of our era is just the fracturing of um, of media. Um, you know, one could write for weekly magazines back then, and and you know, command a big share of the media landscape. Um, you know, I 
I think, wow, that's a great question. I, you know, I think today it's about it's about finding uh, reputable sources of information. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, uh, <laughs> the All About Beer podcast. Well, man. sure, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, but, um, but you know, there's, you know, there's, if, if you're interested in, 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 uh, the West. There's great writers who write about it. There's Terry Tempest Williams. There's Timothy Egan. There's High Country News. There's uh, Nate Schweber. Oh my goodness, jeez, you've been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, the the book though also, and and you don't get to this super directly, but I was able to see the fracturing of news mm. through the book, of being able to write for a bunch of different places and the influence that places has. But then also how, especially during the McCarthy era, places started to blacklist writers and were more worried about advertising dollars than the truth. And by and large, I mean, there's a lot of places that subscribe to that now where stories will just never see the light of day in certain publications because it's going to upset, you know, people. And, you know, it it, it just reminds me of, you know, the old adage of like, writing without fear or favor yeah. or, you know, uh, you know, let no one dare to say anything false to let nobody, you know, yeah. dare to print any, you know? Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's, there's, I just butchered that quote cause the gin <laughs> is kicking in. Um, uh, but there is, it was interesting as a journalist to see that mm-hmm. begin yeah. through his work. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fascinating. He, uh, uh, Joe McCarthy attacked, the magazines that Bernard DeVoto wrote for and some of you know, Harper's never Harper's never wavered. Harper's always loyally, faithfully. They, they published him every single month for 20 years. Uh, but other magazines, the Saturday Evening Post, Reader's Digest, Fortune, um, they stopped accepting Bernard DeVoto stories while they were getting attacked by Joe McCarthy because they were they were scared of they were scared of the retribution. And, you know, and what that meant was that he got his microphone cut right when he was addressing his largest ever audience about conservation. There was a crisis situation in national parks. And because of McCarthy, Bernard uh, couldn't get his message out. So he had to figure out other ways. And he did. More with Nate Schweber in a minute as I switch from gin to beer. But first, thanks to this episode's sponsors. And I hope you'll give them a closer look. Stomp Stickers is a reliable resource for printed items, such as beer labels and boxes, keg collars, coasters, and more. Visit stompstickers.com and use code BEEREDGE15 for 15% off of your first order. And thanks to Cigar City Brewing for sponsoring this episode. They're the makers of High Low IPA. Tropical and bright flavors and a full palette of flavor and potency designed with moderation in mind, Hilo IPA lowers the intensity of a typical India Pale Ale while maintaining the highest quality hop flavor possible. Learn more by visiting CigarCityBrewing.com. And now, back to my backyard and more with Nate Schweber. For as much as this book is about conservation, protecting of lands, environmentalism, activism, just being a good citizen... This is also a love story. Yeah, it's the it's a dual biography. It's about Bernard DeVoto and his uh, magnificent wife, Avis, um, and they were an amazing couple. And I should you know I'm 
should rewind and make sure that everybody understands that everything I have previously said on uh, so far today about Bernard DeVoto, none of that would have been possible without Avis DeVoto. They were amazing partners. They had a deep love. They were together till death did them part. And... Um, and they were just perfectly matched, you know. They they fell in love. It was uh, it was uh, it was scandalous. Uh, it was taboo. He was a teacher at Northwestern University in 1922. He was 25 years old, and she, 18 years old, was his smartest student. And um, but they bonded over a love of books. They both loved books. They both wanted to create books. Her as an editor, him as a writer, and you know he he suffered uh, he had mental health challenges especially when he was younger he went through some suicidal depressions and Avis was really the one that got him through that and later in life even you know uh you know he he was definitely tormented and Avis was the one that kept him grounded and also you know <laughs> helped him brainstorm story ideas and edited them and copy edited them and proofread them and indexed them and answered his mail and bore their two sons and kept a house up and cooked incredible meals for him because he loved to eat and she loved to cook. And that sort of ties into why we, uh, why we know about Avis DeVoto in pop culture today. Well, sure. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But there is... What was so fascinating to me was the research that went into this because they were both so prolific. Yeah. Not only in what was published, but what was unpublished, and yeah. that their letters survived. Yeah, I was so lucky with that. I was so lucky with that. Um, you know, Bernard, not only did he publish prolifically, but he also wrote letters prolifically. And there's, a, there's an archive of, in, at Stanford University of all his stuff. And then Avis. Uh, Avis was also a prolific writer, a prolific letter writer, and she has an archive at Harvard University. And it's between those two. There's just I was, I was blessed with an abundance of archival riches uh, for working on this project. You 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 talk about his struggles. You talk about the scandals. There's bits of marital discord that show up throughout the book. There's a whole series of letters that Bernard writes to another woman. Um, and while because of what you wrote, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have able to become physical, yeah. but there was, you know, an affair of, of, of the mind, yeah. uh, affair of the heart. Yeah. Um, you were able to glimpse the lives of these, of these two and, and so many of the other people that they came across yeah. as well. Um, and seeing the beginning of friendships, the, 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 the end of friendships, yeah. um, I've never done a project like this. Is it, is it like binging a Netflix show? It, does does it, does it feel intrusive at any point? Does it feel? I I don't know if anybody who writes letters like that yeah. ever imagined that in 2022. You know, if they're writing yeah. these in the 40s, 50s, 60s, that there's going to be you know a guy that yeah. they've never heard of yeah. uh, <laughs> writing about. And that's great because they're honest yeah. um, all throughout. But was it weird? Um, as a, boy, as a journalist, it was it was awesome. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, yeah, but, jackpot. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, truly, I was yeah. I was I was blessed to have so much archival stuff to work with. Uh, but that's a that's a really good question. And, um, you know, it was it was 
it was on the Devoto's mind. I know that. You know, they they did take certain steps to uh, hide some of their letters for an amount of time. I will say that one of the first people when I wanted to start working on this project, one of the first people I reached out to was Mark Devoto, who is the last surviving son of Bernard and Avis Devoto. Yeah. Um, and he's still with us. He is still with us, and he was incredibly cooperative uh, with with me. I'm so grateful to him. He sat for hours of interviews with me, and you know his, his mom. Uh, you know one of the ironies of this world, among many of them, is that Ava's Devoto is very well known in pop culture now, sure. which she never ever expected and she never wanted she was an incredibly incredibly private person i mean she did give her letters to harvard university but she did it on the condition that they would stay sealed until after she was dead so you know between having mark's blessing to work on this project and knowing that you know avis devoto was incredibly incredibly private never wanted attention in her life. Um, never did she expect attention. She never expected to be an interesting historical figure. It's one of the only instances I know of of Avis Devoto being wrong about something. But, um, there, you know, these, these materials were there and they were sealed for an amount of time that made her comfortable by her choice. And then after that, um, you know, again, you know, having especially, you know, talk to her son, I felt that I had, that I was okay to, you know, to, to use the resource that was there, these, in this incredible archival trove yeah. of letters. And, and they are, I mean, in some cases, graphic, in yeah. some cases, you know, like the innermost thinking, almost like diary yeah, thoughts. Yeah, very much, um, very much. You've now mentioned this twice, <laughs> so I don't want to leave people in too much suspense, but um, we can credit... I, I think reading your book, mm-hmm. uh, Avis Devoto, with giving us Julia Child. I think that's entirely accurate. Um, and not only that, but I, you know, one of the things that, um, that I don't think really has been recognized before. So Avis Devoto was Julia Child's best friend. And, um, and it's fun... Yeah, I've been watching the HBO Max series Julia. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's it's fun. It's good. Uh, it's highly fictionalized, but it's good. Okay. And, but and uh, BB Newworth plays Avis Devoto, oh. and she's she's really cool. She's, okay. she's she's it's fun to watch her. I don't. I never found any video footage of Avis Devoto. So sort of the closest we can come to seeing Avis Devoto on film is watching Bibi Newworth play Which, her in and she's great in everything. She's so, great in everything. Like, yeah, she's 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 great in this. Avis was also played in the movie um, Julie and Julia, which came out, I think, 2009. Um, Deborah Rush played her opposite Meryl Streep playing Julia Child. But um, this, okay. you know, this it's a it's a wonderful story. Um, well, you know, to tie it all in, Bernard was getting blacklisted from these big magazines because Joe McCarthy was attacking the magazines. And thankfully, he had Avis, his perfect partner in every way, emotionally and professionally. And, you know, this was their livelihood. His writing was their livelihood. So yeah. they had to figure out how to compensate for his getting blacklisted. So they started, he started writing articles for a woman's magazine under a pseudonym. Yeah. And, and he did that for other places he, as well. Yeah, he did he did pseudonym work at other places. Serials. Uh, yeah, like other that, times yeah. other times he, you know, he when he was younger, he wrote under a pseudonym. He wrote sort of 
very well paid, but not very, uh, you know, not very smart, right. <laughs> shall we say, articles. He did that under a pseudonym to make a lot of money well, sure. in order to subsidize the work he really wanted to do under his own name. But at this time, he was writing under a pseudonym because he was getting blacklisted yeah. uh, in the McCarthy era. But he uh, was, he, you know, he started brainstorming with Avis. They started working together more closely than they, than they ever had before to think of new types of story ideas to write, how to write stories that would reach new audiences. And Avis told him, you know, there's all these, this was the dawn of, uh, you know, kind of the, 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 the stereotypical 1950s housewife. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, this is a new market in America. There are women that are reading magazines. You need to write articles that will, will appeal to women readers. And Avis suggested that he write about kitchen knives. Yeah. And he did. He put it in Harper's Magazine and that got Bernard DeVoto a fan letter from an aspiring cookbook chef, uh, a cookbook author living in Paris, Julia Child. And Avis, because she often answered Bernard's mail, wrote back. And, you know, you can almost, you can see the gears turning in Avis's head because she was fascinated with cooking and with cookbooks. And she gets this letter from this woman who's saying, I'm at work on a cookbook. And Avis tells Julia Child, basically... I know everybody in publishing through my husband. I am going to get you a book contract. And she does. And she ends up saving Julia Child's career a couple times. Uh, but yes, she's the person that brought Julia Child to mass attention. She's the reason that we know of Julia Child. Avis DeVoto is the reason that uh, Julia Child is such a legend today. I was thinking as I was reading through the book of the research of all of the letters that you had come your way and a conversation that I had, uh, a couple years ago when I was in Missoula, Montana, hey, hey. uh, good place. with your very good friends, uh, Lido and Jessica Vizzuti. I love Lido and Jessica Vizzuti. Um, they, uh, that was the gin, uh, messing up their, their, their consonants. <laughs> I would say that there. stone cold. Sober. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Um, we were talking about you mm. and the, the idea of the Nate Schweber text message oh came my up goodness. Uh -oh. <laughs> where most people will just be like, Hey, running late on my way or, you know, Hey, how mm. you doing? And somebody would just respond okay. By and large, <laughs> your text messages are letters. You, you go on for several screens uh -oh. of thought. No, no, no. This is a really good thing. Um, but I don't know where these text messages are going to be archived for future generations when they write the book about you writing this book and all oh the work that gosh. is still to come for you. Um, but there's something to be said about the loss of letter writing. I, I thought I was thinking about that a lot when I was working on this project. I mean, I, I, I thought, you know, what, what are, what are uh, uh, nonfiction writers, historical nonfiction writers going to do in the future. Like I, I, when I was in the process of doing the research, I was very aware of how lucky I was to have these incredible archives of these incredible letters from these incredible writers. And I thought, wow, in 50 years, you know, are people going to be looking back on like what tweets, texts? Yeah. Uh, but even how, yeah. I mean, with people in control of their data, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, just deleting mm -hmm. stuff and yeah. just, you know, mm -hmm. and, and think about all of the emails that are written every day yeah. as almost nothing. Yeah. And they go into the trash. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there was something obviously very personal about these because you were putting pen to paper and it had to be mm -hmm. thoughtful. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't backspace, backspace. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. It yeah. was 
there's a level of trust in what you were writing that you know the person wasn't going to share it, but then of course there wasn't also social media of like yeah. you won't believe what I just heard from <laughs> yeah yeah um, but it is going to get harder for books like this to be done in the future. Yeah, I think it might. I mean, you know, I want to be optimistic and say, well, you know, who knows what, what future nonfiction, uh, narrative nonfiction writers are going to figure out how to do with the resources, you know, maybe they're, maybe we're going to find really cool books that get written based on text messages. I'm sure there are future biographers of the 45th president who are going to confront that exact challenge sure but yeah i mean you know maybe 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 texts and facebook posts maybe those will maybe there will be a, a cool creative way to make those into really gripping uh non-fiction you know god yeah. bless the god bless the writers who are trying to figure that We're out gonna do that. yeah <laughs> yeah when you think about the future of america's land mm -hmm. of public land where are the fights today? There were a lot of, you know, not even not even indirect parallels. There were a lot of direct parallels. Yeah. Again, you know, I was working on that book really between like 2016 and 2021. And, you know, in the book I write about a national monument in Utah that is on the brink of being destroyed. And between 2016 and 2021, two national monuments in Utah were ordered by executive order to be reduced by 50% and 90% respectively. Um, I was writing about a movement that arose in the West uh, by a very vocal minority to sell off America's public lands. Around 2015, 2016, there arose a very vocal minority in the West that were dedicated to selling off America's public lands. Um, so, you know, these, you know, if history is any guide, the future is going to see these fights all over again. And, you know, as with, as with all the beautiful things in life, you know, uh, they can be wrecked, you know, they all, they, they have to be saved always because they can only be wrecked once. But I think, you know, the story of Bernard and Avis DeVoto and, and, you know, what they did and how they did it in their time. They got this amazing coalition together. They were very smart and very strategic in building this coalition. They paid really close attention. Um, you know, those, those tools worked in their time and hopefully for the sake of national parks and all other public lands, Hopefully those same tools, perhaps modified to whatever future situations arise, hopefully those tools will work again. Do you have faith that they will? Long pause. I can't say no, because that would be, yeah. you know... The, you You're know, also what, a journalist yeah, who just what, <laughs> covers what's happening in real time. <laughs> no, I know. No, yeah. no, but, um, you know, it's it's always... You know, one of the things Bernard DeVoto would say is, you know, to some people, it's always 1159 in America. Like, it's always, we've always been on the brink of ruin. There's always been Americans at every single stage in American history who's like, that's it. Everything is done. We're, we're you know, it's, it, every, everything's about to go to hell right now. Everything used to be so much better. That's a constant in American history. And, you know, there's been a lot of damage done, but there's also been a lot of great things that have been saved, including national parks and public lands. And, you know, as, as more, you know, and again, 
the Devotos built a broad coalition to protect public lands, and hopefully that coalition is getting bigger and bigger. You know, indigenous communities are having more of a say in what happens on public lands, which were their homelands. That's a very hopeful thing. Um, you know, more Americans are understanding about that, you know, that public lands are our American birthright, our shared heritage. Um, and again, the increased awareness of them, the more people that know, the more people that understand the stakes, the safer those, those lands are going to be. So I do, I do think that more people are becoming aware of uh, the value of public lands and what's at stake and just, you know, the, the sort of psychic connection between uh, public lands where everyone is free to move around and freedom of thought. You know, the, the wilderness was the, was, the, was the natural world that was encountered by the first Americans from which they came up with these conceptions of American democracy. There's a real spiritual connection between public lands, freedom of movement, and freedom of thought. One of the things that I was thinking about with advocacy is, so I've never been to Yellowstone. Um, and I feel like it's one of those things. We got to go sometime, well, man. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and you, you know a thing or two about it from previous books yeah. and obviously life. Um, but it's one of those things that I'm aware of mm. and I've seen documentaries mm. about. And But I feel like this is that East Coast elitism that show up or coastal elitism where the middle of the country is that flyover zone. Mm. And so you hear about these things, but getting to Yellowstone takes work and getting to, you know, some of the, the you know, the yeah. parts actually, it's not, you know, landing at McCarran or Harry Reid sure, airport yeah. <laughs> and being like literally being on the strip, you know, it's, it's, it takes it takes some effort to, to, to do. I'm of the school of thought that says, thank goodness it yeah. requires work to get to. I know, but, but I feel like that that is one of those things that can be just the slightest hurdle mm. for some people. Well, you've been or, to Denali. I've never been, I've to, been Denali. to Denali. Yeah, yeah, but like, you know, I I, I walked in, you oh, know, and goodness. I went like 50 feet into the park and it's was more like, than hey, I this have is done. cool. That's All on right. my bucket list. But again, you know, this is not, I didn't camp there. Like, I stayed at the Holiday Inn down the street because... You still visited. Yeah. You still but, got to have, an, have a Denali experience. Which was cool. And it was, yeah. it, it was, it was neat to see. I, I wonder... I mean, you can't make things mandatory, but I wonder if some of these fights would be just a little bit easier if we all, mm. at some point early in our lives, like when able, yeah. saw it, saw these things up close and understood the vastness and yeah. the importance. People go to the Grand Canyon, yeah. and it's 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 awe inspiring. Yeah. Once you know, like <laughs> you know, the second time you go, every right, single now, time, now it's a big hole. Maybe like, for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I am uh, an objective journalist, but uh, uh, often. Uh, but I did think that you know one one of the I thought one of the cool things that uh, Barack Obama did was he made it so that every fourth grader in America and their families got free admission to national parks. I thought that was a really cool idea because yeah, I I, I you know I do think that yeah exposure exposure to it and you know national parks they are such treasures that you can experience them just through TV shows or through legend or through hearing about them and they'll still have, you know, an important place in your, you know, uh, a sacred spot in your in your in your mental realm. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I do think that that, you know, and again, that's the Devoto idea. That's that's the James Madison idea about America. The more people that have a stake, that understand the stakes, the safer this, you know, the safer 
these things are going to be. And we need protectors of it, and we need vocal people that bring this to the to the forefront. And I'm I'm well, so I'm so grateful you wrote this. Book. Ah, thanks, man. Well, I'm thankful you read it and wanted to talk to me about it, Mike. Again, dear listeners out there, this book never wouldn't this Stop. book never would have been written if Stop. it wasn't for John Hall. No, no, no. That's um, <laughs> I, 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 I will say that even if you weren't one of my dearest mm-hmm. friends, um, I would be shouting this book uh, book from the rooftop. Uh, it's called This America of Ours: uh, Bernard and Avis Devoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. Nate Schweber, thanks for sitting in the backyard, and, and thanks for the potent cocktails. And I am so happy to be on Steal This Beer. I am going to steal also, some beer also not next. not that podcast. Um, <laughs> oh, that's oh, what it says on the... On the no. no. I thought it said that on my, on my podcast. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway, I've been drinking a Devoto Dry Martini while we have been talking. Your music has been the theme music of Drink Beer, Think Beer since its founding, and also the old podcast as well. And and you're bringing up the Augie Carton show. Thanks very much, pal. It's a, it's 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 wonderful. I, it's wonderful to have you here in the backyard at my house. Can I can I plug Drink Beer, Think Beer by John Hall? A very good book. <sighs> so anyway. Conversations start well with a Devoto dry martini. They don't always end well with them. But you can tell that jovial feeling is engendered by drinking these things and talking. Get at us, (laughs) y'all. Oh, Jesus Christ. Should play right. lawyers, guns, and money. You should. You want to play a couple of bars with it? Mm-hmm. All right. Yes, I do. All right. All right. Um, takes us back to working on Indiana breweries. I thought you were going to keep going. Oh, I thought I had a time limit. Man. No, man. Oh, well. All right. That was I, great. You know, send lawyers, guns, and money. <laughs> send lawyers, guns, and money. I think that's pretty good. I think that uh, we don't uh, have to pay the royalties on that now. Oh, okay. Yeah, because yeah. it, it was in two sections. Right. Yeah, that's fine. Thanks, pal. Thanks for having me on, John. If you're listening to this and like what you hear, you can reach out to Nate directly via his website, nateschweber.com. He's available for talks, events, and even live music. Breweries, get on this and add him to your lineup. You won't be disappointed. And don't forget, This America of Ours, his new book, is available for pre-order now and releases on July 5th, 2022. Get your copy wherever books are sold. 
Also, a quick reminder that the Craft Brewery Cookbook is now on sale where books are sold. Get a copy today. And don't forget to go visit All About Beer, which is back online. It's allaboutbeer.com where you can catch up with great content. If you want to get in touch with me, you have questions, comments, guest suggestions, anything else, you can email me. It's John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com, or you can get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Check out beeredge.com for our This Week in Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner merch, and follow along on social media at The Beer Edge. Of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search, and on Twitter and Instagram, it's at TWRaukBeer. We're able to bring you this show each week, thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com. And speaking of that, today's episode is sponsored by Stomp Stickers. Stomp is a proud member of the Brewers Association that produces a wide variety of printed brewery products, such as beer labels, cake collars, coasters, beer boxes, and much more. Stomp's website features an easy-to-use design tool, low-quantity orders, fast turnaround times, and free domestic shipping. Visit stompstickers.com and use code BEEREDGE15 for 15% off of your first order. As promised, I'm back with Wayne Wombles. He's the brewmaster of Cigar City Brewing and the brewery as a sponsor of this episode. And of course, we're thankful for that. And Wayne, we've been talking about high-low. So when it comes to this session IPA, what do you want people to notice taste and aroma-wise? The main thing that I notice is, um, you know, it's like a melange of, of citrus. So orange, lemon, lime, all those different components. Uh, there's a little bit of stone fruit, but it's definitely citrus driven. Um, and the malt character is more in the flavor than the aroma. So a little bit of breadiness in the finish. There is an assertive hot bitterness up front and it, and it leads to uh, stone fruit and goes back to that blend of citrus um, and, and when it goes into the flavor profile of the hops and then finishes really clean with a lingering bitterness. Well, thanks, Wayne. And I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. And now I'm going to encourage everybody to go visit CigarCityBrewing.com to learn more about Hilo and all of the brewery's other beers. Sounds great. Thanks, John. Okay, go check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Don't forget, Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. And go visit allaboutbeer.com. As for this show, Nate Schweber, hey, you know him. He does the music. Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.